This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Today I'm going to be crossing the ditch again to New Zealand to interview the owner of Terminal Ballistics Researchers, Nathan Foster. Now, I originally found Nathan on YouTube and some really, really good content. Um, What probably attracted me most to what Nathan was doing was the fact that he was doing real world examples of the damage of certain types of bullets from hunting bullets to match bullets. So what he would do, he'd shoot different various game at different distances and then he'd basically cape them out to see the damage of each individual bullet. And what I found very interesting was the damage of certain types of match bullets over hunting bullets. So that's something we're going to talk to uh, him about today. If you want to go check out his website, you can go to ballisticstudies.com. if you go to his store, he's actually written quite a number of books, uh, such as Small Armed Wound Ballistics, The Practical Guide to Long Range Hunting Rifles, The Practical Guide to Bold Action Rifle Accurizing and Maintenance, The Practical Guide to Long Range Hunting Cartridges, The Practical Guide to Reloading, and of course, uh, one of his very good ones, The Practical Guide to Long Range Shooting. Uh, he's a very, very experienced guy, so I'm really pleased to have him on the show to talk to uh, us, I guess, and... and educate us all on things terminal ballistics regarding bullets how to get the best out of your rifle how to select the best bullet we're going to talk about rifles we're going to talk about scopes we're going to talk about you know the reason bullets are terminally so good and ballistically is it the shape we're going to talk about everything to do with that i'm super stoked to get him on the show but before we get into it again want to thank everyone that supports me on patreon i really really appreciate it you know again like i always say i really couldn't do this without you so if you'd like to get the show in advance of everyone else in general listenership just five bucks a month. If that's as limited as you want to pay, that's totally fine. I really, really appreciate it. Um, you can go to patreon.com forward slash AHP. Of course, you can listen to the show on the website. You can listen to it on Stitcher. You can also listen to it on the Podbean app. I also do upload it to YouTube as well. The website is also a place to listen. And of course, our main place to listen, which is iTunes. And if you could leave me a comment, rate it five stars. Again, I'd really, really appreciate it. I think we've got upwards of about 280 comments. Um, pretty much five stars total uh, for most of it which is absolutely fantastic shows that you guys are loving it and enjoying it and of course that's the ultimate goal is to make sure people are actually enjoying it Uh, we're going to be doing a few more shows again coming up soon going to have some straight shooting Uh, that's going to be fun to get back into that series as well I'm also going away on a bunny hunting trip a lot of you guys know previously uh, made a few videos for YouTube um, some rabbit hunting so again we're going to be going away I think around um, August August 21st to 25th I'm going to make some more videos again on that uh, uh, bunny hunting style of what we've been doing so you can check out my YouTube channel which is AHP Outdoors that's for my general hunting videos and stuff like that Um, if you want to listen to the podcast on YouTube you can go to just Australian Hunting Podcast and also again if you want to go on the website if you want to leave us a voicemail or send us an email you can either do that via the website and click on that right hand side slider bar and go leave voice 
voicemail. Uh, also, you can email me at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com for anything. If it's questions, email them to me. I did notice, just to follow up, um, some people were sending me pictures of stickers that I'd sent out. And I went into my spam folder because normally what I do with the spam folder, it gets a bit, you know, it gets a bit overboard sometimes. I normally go in there and just clear it out. But for the first time ever, I actually went to look and somehow found a bunch of people that had sent me emails and stickers. So if I haven't responded to your email or I haven't read it out on straight shooting, I'm really sorry. Chances are it might have gone into my spam folder. And I really love getting emails from people where they're sending me pictures of where they're putting the AHP stickers. And we've had a really, really good run on stickers. I've probably set out, I don't know why all of a sudden I put a, I put a link out and we've sold about 50 or so stickers. Uh, so if you have bought one or I have sent you one, please send me an email and send me a few photos of where you put the the stickers i'd really love to see where you're putting them on your car or your safe and uh, i love sharing that on instagram i love sharing that on facebook so uh send us an email i'm going to be checking that spam folder from now on because if i have not responded to you i'm really sorry um send it again or if i haven't read your comment out on the show please send it again because i'm really sorry about that it's the first time i've ever checked that spam box and i'm seeing basically emails from people that are going unattended which is really disappointing from google because again they should be able to uh, properly fix that and not put you know decent honest emails into my spam folder so uh, hopefully they're going to check that out so again we're going to be interviewing nathan foster you can go to ballisticstudies.com if you want to check out his products and the purpose of this show actually is to basically grab an off-the-shelf rifle uh, off-the-shelf ammunition and get the best results we can out of it. That's the most people that listen to this show. Sure, if you've got money to buy more expensive gear, that's absolutely fantastic. But this is for people as well that um, may not have you know all the money in the wood and to get the best results they can out of a general off-the-shelf hunting rifle and try and be able to shoot um, multi and varied distances with practice. That's the main thing, guys. Obviously, practicing on targets first before you think about stretching the legs out uh, on game for long-range shooting. So I think we should get into the show uh, with Nathan Foster, and uh, it's going to be an absolute cracker. So let's get into it. All right, Nathan Foster uh, from Terminal Ballistics Research. Thank you for joining me. Been wanting to uh, interview you for a while now, but it's my fault because I got a bit lazy when I used to watch a fair few of your videos on YouTube and I thought, mate, this is a guy that I really really want to get on the show. Uh, Very experienced and uh, I like the way you present and checked out your website, loving what you do. So thanks for joining me here on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. That's really kind of you to say. No worries. I mean, I guess first off, I just just a bit of background about yourself. I mean, how you sort of yeah, got into shooting, long range shooting, hunting, etc. If you could be a bit of a background about yourself, yeah, so that people know who you are, that'd be fantastic. Uh, well, I got into it at a very early age, and I, I guess it was my calling, if you could uh, say that. Uh, so even when I was a toddler, I was uh, fascinated with uh, cartridges the spent cartridges I could find, the casings and, and so forth that I could find and the experience that, that I had with my father when we went out. And, uh, I, well, it's, I've written a little bit about, uh, or actually written a lot about why in, um, in my most recent book, but generally it, it just took me at that early age and, um, and that was it. I was hooked. And so I would always come back to it. Um, it was always on my mind, and as soon as I was old enough to use a, a bow, a bow and arrow, that's what I had when I was about seven years old, something like that, and and uh, I just practiced every day. Accuracy was a big deal to me, and um, 
and then we would have the hunting with um, my father and his friends. And um, there was one friend in particular. Now, my father, was he was a very good shot, and he, he'd won a shootout to about 2,000 yards. But um, we also had a friend who, um, when I was very young, he would take us out hunting. And uh, he his father was a, a sniper during the Second World War, and the, the uh, son was... Uh, Considered, he was being groomed, I think, for the for Vietnam as well. And I'd been out hunting with him, and I'd watched him take shots, and and that had a profound effect on me. Just watching the way the animals just went straight down, it was an incredible thing to see. It's and a, so, so I'm going to say it's amazing, isn't it? Between just the just the culture I find over here in Australia compared to New Zealand, and I don't know, you guys seem to have a yeah, sort of a very rich, ingrained culture of hunting, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, we do, and we had um, good literature here as well. Um, when I was growing up, one of the scholastic books was by uh, an Australian author who had migrated over here, Philip Holden, and uh, his book, Pack and Rifle, there was the adult version and the scholastic version as well. So there are many good books around to support us that were in the schools as well. And, and so, yeah, there are a lot of influences there. And then as soon as I... I was able to when I left home. Uh, left home quite young and uh, went into dairy farming, and we had a big runoff going up into the hills. And I got a got my firearms license um, basically as I was leaving school, and I got my first rifle, which was a, a Lee Enfield. And yeah, I was away. And, and even then, right from the get go, for me, it was about technique, refining technique, and working on accuracy and and pushing myself as far as I could. I don't know why that was. And when I look back on it, my um, my father taught me basic technique, and I, I'd been to club shoots, deer stalkers club shoots and things like that, but I I don't know what it was, but there was this um, self-imposed thing where I would be checking everything over, and this is just as a 16-year-old. And, and when I look back at it now, it's quite hard to really fathom, but I was really pushing myself as to what, what makes good accuracy and you know, how far can I shoot. And and then, of course, there was the um, the ethical killing side of it. So that was always um, a great concern. And uh, I'd always felt a fondness towards animals. and But I loved hunting, so I thought, well, if I was going to hunt, I wanted to make sure the animals went down quickly. And the gear that we had wasn't all that good. And then... Um, I think it was at that time I met Steph. She was uh, on the farm next door to me, and we started going out together. and And it was at that point that we, her and I, both started to discuss these things. And once they come out in the open, you know, then it's a, a tabled issue, so to speak. And and so we we would talk quite a bit about um, ethical killing, and and that just kept pushing me more and more. And so it it just carried on. So no, no matter where I worked, no matter what job I had, what profession I was in. Uh, it kept coming back to this, and I was taking notes, and uh, I was collecting the magazines of the time as well, and, and I had them all bookmarked, and they were quite a mess, actually. They had bits of notepaper sticking out of them, and they were all catalogued so I could cross-reference things, and and I was comparing my notes to the, the notes that the other authors were getting, and of course, as time got by, you begin to see holes with some of the authors writing, and they start to realise that some of that was only theory, and, and they were... They were just quickly trying to um, get these things tested so that they could make a magazine article and therefore get that copy off. And yeah. So yeah, yeah, as I went along, you know, I started to notice these things, and um, 
and then finally when I there was some things I wanted to to, um, to challenge myself with in my career I wanted to do some bits and pieces in London and, and uh, once we'd finished all of that then um, that's when I really sat down and decided that this was going to be it it's it's kind of amazing too when and what really attracted me to your videos was someone that was out there um, that's how I first found out about you first on YouTube and someone that's out there that's actually testing these things and going over to the animals and 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 showing us the you know what the what the damages and what the terminal ballistics are of these bullets on these animals and uh, you don't get a lot of people doing that a lot of people say well you know this bullet for an example is you know uh, is great or this this other bullet's fantastic from this manufacturer but most people um, unless they're obviously pulling the game down and eating the game don't really know what the how good the bullet's performing but that's what i really liked about what you did yeah and there was a a time when that's we just went so um so much into that we we just lived and breathed it nonstop for um a number of years uh to, to get that base data we needed to have that um that initial body of data and i think i was working up to 16 hours a day at that time and oh, we were doing possums for, for collecting um our income from possum fur and and then i'd be shooting or hunting during the day or in, in, into the evenings and collecting data and I had this huge bloody ring binder folder which and a pencil and an eraser yeah. and uh, yeah to keep all, all of my notes in there I didn't I, I'd actually had quite bad luck with cameras I'd we had some throw throw out cameras because we were tramping so far up into areas uh Kaimanawas and Uruweras and places like that and um they were okay but um I bought myself a nice camera and, and dropped that up in the Southern Alps and lost all of my footage, and that, that was really annoying. <laughs> There's some good car research we had. Yeah. Um, but in the throughout, I was mostly taking hand drawings of what I was seeing and, and making notes. And um, yeah, so to, to actually do the work would be to stop in the field and pull that ring binder out of my pack and start writing, and, and then um, that might be a around lunchtime or something when there's not many animals around and and then as the day progressed it's getting into evening and you're starting to have animals come out again well then we'd get back back out there again and start hunting and and click more research but it was hard work it was re really really hard work and um but now as um as of as I'm getting older um we can we can collect less data because we've got that main body there so it's just as and when we need to, we we will head out and we'll we'll do that. So it's an ongoing thing. But gosh, you know, there was for many years there was just a lot of uh, non-stop work there. But when you're young, you've got the energy to do that. So you've got to, you know, cut a life for yourself. That's the time when you want to to make the most of that exuberance that your body has and and that your mind has as well. But of yeah. course, when you're young, you're not very wise. So <laughs> you make a lot of mistakes as you go as well. So you've got to be prepared to question yourself. I think that's the the key is to be able to look back on it and correct yourself. So try not to go for absolutes and um, you know, conclusions and just uh, gather that data, look at it, but be prepared to to change how you view things because that's what I had to do. I, I had um, beliefs, these biases towards how I think things should be but then as I gather that experience I realise actually no the bullet doesn't have to work this way it can work another way and it can get the job done so 
Yeah, great perspective. Yeah, yeah. what you talked to us, like, it's finally about your father. I mean, is that something? I mean, it's obviously a rich, as I said before, hunting culture in New Zealand. They sort of find memories, you know, growing up. Is that how you eventually got into, you know, shooting and hunting when you were younger via your, your dad, as you said a bit earlier? Those were the times um, that we had together, that um, those were the peaceful times, away from the chaos of of life and uh, his work and, and so forth. That was when when we really had that time together. So, yeah, there were defining moments between an otherwise um, chaotic world. When we were there, everything was just, it just felt like it was in order. It was, there was a peace to it. So, and it was simple. You know, life was very, very simple. So it just, it really was burned into my mind. Yeah. yeah, you're right compared to today, you know, you're, and it's funny how you were just talking a bit earlier, I remember those sort of days, I'm only 39, but, you know, where things, you know, it was probably the advent of the internet, you know, back when I was 15 and you could get on the, you know, the chat groups and, you yeah. know, things were paper and, and now it's crazy right. how, you know, I guess with things becoming simpler, but it's becoming more crazy, so to speak, you know, all the technology and, and you know, we thought it was difficult back then, but I guess the pressures of life now and the and the stresses of social media and stuff, Really, people don't know the unfortunately the ill effects of these types of things, but you know, it can um, be that way, and especially when the guys are trying to learn how to become um, better hunters or shooters, and there's just such an information dump. And actually, the the actual activity of shooting is an activity where the brain should be in a calm place in order for you to be able to shoot straight, and that brain should be generating it those calm alpha waves of, you know, where you're just quietly aware of what you're doing. And um, it's the complete opposite to what what people are getting on their computers. So the more time they spend looking at guns on the computer, the less less likely they are to be able to do great. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, don't worry. Yeah, I know. Um, Tell us about, I mean, I, I've never hunted in New Zealand, haven't been there yet, hope to get there someday. One of my old, uh, and I, I saw the number when I punched it into the phone, what area you're in, and my, my ro- old roommate that lived with me for a couple of years, he uh, he's from your area. So um, I guess what's it like to hunt in New Zealand, and, and also what game do you enjoy hunting when you still be able to get out there and, and have a bit of fun, whether it's short-range hunting, long-range or medium-range hunting? Oh, well, we're, we're based in Taranaki, so it's a, there's a lot of mud, so you've got to get used to mud. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, we we hunt all over the country. But uh, I guess for our favourite game animals, um, seeker deer would be one of our favourites. But uh, I still enjoy um, hunting for pigs, but not with dogs, but actually um, sniping for pigs. Uh, that's, that's always been a great pastime of mine. But... Um, I enjoy it all, really. This, this, yeah, every single aspect of it, and the different uh, terrains we have here in New Zealand. The changes, like I say, here we have the mud, um, but if you go into the central North Island, you have this beautiful um, country with the beach forests and aqua blue water. It's just, I can't even describe it to you. It's just so beautiful, and and you can just stand there, and it just fills you up on the inside. You just feel so good in these places and then to go down to the South Island and have these peaks just jutting up so far and you think how am I ever going to get up there and <laughs> yeah, yeah I've seen those yeah. so yeah e- everywhere there's each area has its own magic really yeah, yeah. I- 
I look at those mountains when I think, oh, I want to hunt New Zealand, and I thought, Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to really get into shape, mate, that's for sure, before I even think about, you know, I've started yeah, slow just recently with the COVID, getting back out there and just, you know, walking an hour a day, five days a week just to start. But I thought, when I saw those hills, I thought, shit, I think I'm going to have to do a bit more than just uh, just walking, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's right, just walking bit by bit. Of course, the clothing choice, uh, that has an effect uh, a lot of the clothes that uh, I wear in my uh, tutorial videos, they're okay for kicking around here, but they're not all that suitable for um, for hunting in central North Island and South Island because you're just constantly in the wet and river crossings and so forth. And so you really need clothing that dries quickly and doesn't cling to you. So long johns and shorts are the way to go and good pair of boots and... Um, yeah, some good wind and waterproof clothing because, of course, the temperatures can change so quickly and the conditions change. So you've got to, always got to be prepared for that. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's certainly every time I watch a bunch of the um, you know, like a bunch, a bunch of the YouTube guys over there, you know, it always sort of seems that you know, it's always it's windy one day and then it's raining the next and then it's warm and then it's cold and then as yeah. you said, it's muddy and yeah. Yeah, so it's all uh, Robin Hood men in tights over here. <laughs> yeah, just to just to get that water um, off the body quickly. That's the that's the main thing, so that you can dry out and get warm again. Absolutely, mate. We're just going to go to a quick break, and we'll be right back to talk more with Nathan Foster. Camo Warehouse is Australia's leading supplier of quality hunting clothing and accessories. We stock leading outdoor clothing brands such as Rocky Boots, Georgia Boots, Hunter's Element, Ridgeline, Spiker, 511, Stony Creek and many more. Camo Warehouse is the leading supplier of optics and shooting accessories including Leopold, Bushnell, Zerotech, Lyman, Powerbeam and Lightforce. We can also order in custom Boyd stocks from the US to your specific requirements. Camo Warehouse offers offers flexible, zero-interest payment options, including afterpay and zip pay. Order via our website at camowarehouse.com.au or give us a call on 02 6771 2836. Nathan, mate, when you started posting on YouTube, what, um, I guess, interested you about wanting to, you know, share your information and knowledge on, uh, on YouTube and getting on that platform? Oh, well, actually, when, I, when we uh, started out, we had no intention of being on the internet at all, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we, we ended up there. Um, my initial intention was to write a, a large volume book similar to hunting cartridges of the world, but um, in a lot more depth. However, um, that never came to fruition because I, because I won't stop researching. I, I couldn't help. I was editing myself all the time and and so um, we kind of got bailed out. A friend came along and said, we need to have all this stuff up on the internet. And uh, the, the initial goal was to um, make income by AdWords so we'd have the information freely available to the public and there'd be advertising on the um, website. But when we launched, so we, we did this, it was a big project, and then we launched with all the information that I had. And at that time, Google had an anti-firearm policy so our website became a mixture of information about rifles and uh, where to find hot girls or get tarot readings. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we ended up having to pull all of that coding out. And, uh, yeah, we we had the website and, and then uh, the the company that uh, were helping us, they uh, helped set me up with the 
YouTube and so forth. So I wasn't really um, into the tech side of things. But uh, over time, we gradually shared a few videos here and there that weren't very good videos. And because we we live rurally, um, we had the old copper wires, so we weren't able to upload in any reasonable quality. But we've put a few videos up, but there's, there's not a, a heck of a lot on there because um, it's actually hard to take video um, and hunt at the same time. You know, it's it's that's a thing in itself. If you're yep. on your own, it's either usually either one or the other. Absolutely. But some of the the more simple stuff, chasing the goats around here and that sort of thing. Yeah, we can, we can do that. But um, and then in recent times, we've started to um, offer a few live streams, and that's just to help people along with the with the various problems that they have, and to let them know that we're still here. But uh, yeah, that's it's all been a learning curve. That's real. Absolutely, it's um, yeah. I never thought. I always loved when I probably started my hunting career. I, Probably started off in you know you know foxes over there, but you know fox calling and calling in whistling foxes, and then yeah. you know I got into my which is pretty 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 big over there too. Got into my um, bird hunting for some states we can still go duck hunting in in Australia, but we can do some uh, you know rice field mitigation on ducks here in New South Wales because it is banned in my state, but you can still do it under certain permits. And then and then I sort of got my first rifle, and I thought oh, I wouldn't mind you know stretching the you know the legs out on this thing, obviously on targets first, and then you know, try and build up. I guess I'm by no means any good or a professional or anything like that. I'm just an average dude with, you know, an off-the-shelf rifle that wanted to, you know, and then I started sort of started on, you know, shooting gongs first and then I got into some, you know, sort of just low to medium range sort of rabbit shooting, you know, at to sort of 250 metres and had pretty yeah. good results doing that. And then I thought to myself, you know, geez, I've really gone down this rabbit hole of <laughs> spending all this money and yeah. I'm really, really enjoying this. So I guess you know, when you were reading the articles as you said a bit earlier and getting into it why was it was it and which i like about what you do actually you you, you don't come out with these you know ten fifteen thousand dollar rifles with you know five thousand dollar optics you know you, you don't have that sort of vibe you're an off-the-shelf rifle kind of guy that i'm seeing at least from what i'm you know what i'm reading and what i'm seeing on youtube and that's what most people that listen to my show and no doubt that watch you are just people that have got certain amount of money and they want to get the best out of their gear so when you were doing it what sort of interested you and saying oh, i wouldn't mind stretching this out i want to see you know was it what the guns can well, do was it you know what what sort of prompted you to get interested in it well there were the various factors first of all there were my own interests and in, uh, shooting at longer ranges and i can't really state where that came from it was just there um of course there was influences like the the man the who we, who i went out with as, as a younger man that that fascinated me but um, as as I was coming along through here, we had a lot of pig hunters in our area with um, large teams of dogs. And I'm quite an observer. I'll sit somewhere with binoculars and observe for a, a long period of time. And what I was noticing was that these guys are just crossing each other's paths. They were everywhere. And they had no idea one com- one was coming after the other and and that their dogs were chasing the animals this way and that way. And and it was a hell of a thing. The animals were all over the show. It was quite a mess. And I really, um, I was still young, and I wanted to um, secure pork for, for ourselves. And so I kept working on my own hunting methods, working the tops and looking into the little clearings and, and the little bits of open pieces of bush. They might only be 
20 feet across, but that's what I was looking at. And uh, I was pushing myself further and further out in order to um, achieve these shots. And, and then someone said, oh, you'll, you'll never be able to do that. You need dogs to, um, to get pigs in it. And the way the comment was put forward, it was quite, uh, you know, it was quite offensive the way it was said to me. And that sort of, I kind of dig my toes and I, I get a little bit of an FU sort of an attitude when that sort of thing happens. <laughs> yeah. So I really pushed myself and um, and then I, I started to become successful in, in those areas. And so, you know, you, you have these initial successes and, and you build on those. But when we went to do the um, formal research, we could only afford, we had a set amount of money from our savings and we wanted to do all this cartridge research. So we needed to um, purchase the rifles and purchase the ammunition. And we knew it was going to be expensive, so we couldn't afford to buy the flashiest rifle of every type. We needed to um, you know, have a large collection of these rifles. So we went on a on our initial um, shopping shopping run and we, we purchased these rifles and a lot of them weren't that accurate, but the problem was, well, that in itself something you, you know you, you've got that to learn from. You know what the average accuracy of these types of rifles is going to be. So that's data in itself. But um, there were shots I wanted to take because I didn't want to just shoot the animal. And, you know, there it goes, fall fall over. Write a magazine article. You know, pat on the back. I wanted to be able to um, take the animal at varying ranges, so I could see how the bullet behaved across the velocity spectrum. But it also had to be at various angles, different shot placement, and um, often I, I wanted to also test the calm animal versus a adrenalised animal. So, you know, I'm a bit OCD about my research. So in order to get the rifles to that level of accuracy that I, that I required for that, well, then I had to work on those rifles and, and work out well, what makes an accurate rifle. So we had all of these um, basic factory rifles and they had to be made to work. So that was um, a, another aspect to that. And then, so there's my own interests, and then there's my needs for testing. And then on top of that, we started to guide. We were taking on clients. And at that time, I was just playing Buono, the white guide. And the guys were coming along, and, and um, their rifles could be in any condition. But I guess the average, if I had to put a, a number on it, the average level of accuracy would be about three minutes of angle, so three inches at 100 yards, nine inches at 300 yards, something like that. And so sometimes I'd have to finish off animals that these guys had wounded, otherwise we'd lose them, because the country's quite steep through here, and if you don't get onto the animal quick, well, you lose it over a ravine or something like that. So, yeah, I, um, I put quite a bit of uh, time into these strategies. How long do you leave it? You know, you want the client to have the success on his own. But sometimes a shot would just go south and you, you need to have that rifle ready to go. And uh, I found myself reaching out further and further and further. And and it changed the way I looked at ethics because if a client stuffed up a shot at 100 yards and I'm finishing the animal when it pauses between 300 and 600 yards, which then is the ethical shot? You know, So it kind of changes everything. And then th- there were times when it was blatantly obvious where yeah, the, the clients were just, the gear wasn't together. And, you know, sometimes it was the fault of the client because they didn't put enough time into practicing for themselves. But quite often it wasn't their fault. 
it was the, the rifle, the, the quality of the rifle as it came in. It was just useless. So, and of course, the optics allow you to see a very long way, but um, the rifle itself can let you down. And for the type of hunting we were doing here, quite often the shots were around about 300 yards. That, that was where we were sort of encountering pigs on average for the type of hunting that, that we were doing. And so the, the client needed to have a rifle that was capable of, um, well, we'll say about one inch of accuracy at 100 yards in order to have a three-inch group at 100 yards, but with some degree of error, whether that be human error because of the conditions or wind drift error, that would probably take that group to six inches. So that's what I was seeing, and I knew I needed to have the clients in that region, in that one minute, the magic minute, but a lot of the clients weren't getting there. And then as time changed, as time went on, um, I realised that this whole Buano thing wasn't working, and uh, we we changed the nature of the hunts, and we went to tutorials instead. And then um, after another year, that, that kind of morphed as well, and where for a time it was tutorials where We'd start at the range and we'd do all these things and then we'd end up in the hills. But, um, yeah, as time's gone by and my um, my demands, uh, I, I don't have the time that I used to have. So uh, we, we do more at the range these days and then, then let the clients work out the, the hunting for themselves. And, yeah, we, I just really focus on that uh, that range work. And for long-range work, what, what we're talking about here is 100 yards. That's where I'm really putting that focus because if you can get that right then uh, then you can really reach out after that but if you don't have that foundation then you're no good to anyone so we put most of our effort into that and then after after that's been achieved then uh, we can step it out and and then after they're shooting well six seven hundred yards something like that then they can go away and and carry on on their own and and keep up with that practice Absolutely. I want to talk about just a bit later as well about foundations as well, but we're just going to go to another quick break and we'll be right back. Renowned for their strength, reliability and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. Nathan, I want to talk about something you brought up very interesting there, and this is, I find, um, a very, very hot topic, especially when you see people on the interwebs talking about it, and that was ethics you talk about as well, and I find that very interesting. I'd like to get your perspective on ethics. A lot of people say, well, you know, and I see this all, and you, no doubt you've seen it too on the internet, well, you know, long-range shooting, that's, uh, that's not ethical, but I think ethics to me is, you know, if I've got the experience and the control of my gear to be able to you know, complete shots like that then ethics is derived in my opinion from what I feel comfortable and what my experience level holds so I guess what's your you know idea of ethics and if you could discuss that I think that'd be great well it's always a relative thing um, so it's relative as you say to the experience of the shooter and the, um, the ability of the rifle um, but yeah we need to get real about this because um, a, a lot of a lot of guys who uh, can shoot well at the range under those ideal conditions, they're not any good in the field, even at 100 yards. So um, t- 
to that person, yeah, even shooting at 100 yards is not all that ethical. But um, And then to push that range out further is, of course, worse. But once you get into the long-range game, it can change everything where the focus is on accuracy. It makes the person a better hunter. Well, it can make the person a better hunter. I want to talk about yeah some of your some of your, your books you've written and why you've written them as well. You uh, wrote the practical guide to long range hunting cartridges and the practical guide to long range shooting. You know when did you think I'm going to put pen to paper and, and start sharing this knowledge? Well, I didn't. Again, that was um, that was another thing that came about organically. Um, so we the initial plan was to uh, write a book about cartridges and. Um, and I was going around in circles with that because I wouldn't stop researching. And uh, so then it was uh, one of my clients uh, suggested that we, he had a, a web uh, hosting company, he suggested that we, we put the information up and just get it up now. He said, you've got to get this done. You're, you've got all this information out there, but it's stuck. And so we'll do this and we have the AdWords and you'll finally have some income because at the moment you're sort of digging yourself down into a hole. And then we, we did this, and the AdWords thing completely failed us. And um, this, the web host, he was such a, a lovely person, and he, and he felt so responsible. And uh, and I felt that we'd really given it all, and we kind of didn't know where we were going. We had um, a couple of products. We had our bedding kits and our stock stabilizer kits. And so, you know, we, we had that for income, and um, we were doing a few other bits and pieces, but... It wasn't really going anywhere, but I decided that I wasn't going to pull it down. I wanted to, it was up, and I thought that it's a good thing because otherwise it might never see the light of day. And so we decided that we'd just commit uh, to helping hunters and see where things would go. And we were in like this for a little while, but a um, host, he came down for one of his hunts and he said, You know what? How about you just try for some smaller books? Not the big epic that you were planning in the, in the first instance. <laughs> yeah. And he said, um, I'd like to see some books on long-range hunting. And so we were, we sat at the hut and we discussed discussed this and he outlined what he'd like to see. And and I sort of kicked my heels around and fretted about it and worried of what I was going to actually write. And, and I got the computer out when we got back and I started and, and that was it. It just it flew out. Absolutely flew out, and um, yeah, so that was how that book series came about. And the, the idea was that by doing it in stages, um, rifles first, you know, that was the, the fundamental, the platform, and then cartridges, uh, accurizing and um, maintenance, and then reloading, and then long range shooting. But doing it in all of those stages, those bite sized pieces, I could actually get these out. Um, and that was highly successful, so we're really, um, yeah, really grateful for that help to you know just to get that that um, idea going. But um, yeah, it was another labour of love because I thought, well, shit, I've already done all of this research and work, and and at the time I was thinking, oh, I've got to, what, I've got to go and write another whole book series, and what's all this about? But you know, it was a really good thing, and as he said. Um, I had all this information stuck in there beyond the cartridges, the the, um, the work I'd done on the rifles and the experience we'd had there. Looking back, though, you know, do you think you know, when people actually you know ring you or they call you or they send you an email or, or talk to you on the social media or whatever and say, well, this has really helped me, you know, looking back, I mean, is it good when you get stuff like that? I'm sure it's, you know, you feel like all the hard work has been put to good use. 
Oh, it's been it has been absolutely wonderful, extremely re- rewarding. Um, we've had people who uh, are newbies and they've started with the book series and they've sent their um, feedback to, to let us know how much the series helped them. But also people who've had a lot of experience over the years but have maybe picked up uh, poor habits. Um, that's been amazing too. Guys in their 60s and 70s saying that they're shooting the best they've ever shot in their lives. That's been a wonderful feeling as well. They've ha- they have touched a lot of people, and in a lot of unexpected ways. Um, when the books have arrived um, to people um, at times in their life when they they might have been going through some difficulty or something like that, and it's given them something to focus on. So that kind of feedback's quite unexpected. That it helped them out of a hole. It gave them something to work towards. Because a lot of what I write about in the books is um, asking the shooter what they can bring to the table and and putting the onus back on them, not on um, how much they spend or what brand name they have. It's really about getting them to do the work. And through that, the, the, there is a, a real sense of joy. So, yeah, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, just while, we might as well do it while we're here now. Where can people purchase if they want to, you know, purchase your products and say, well, I want to get into these books? How do they, how do they go about it? Straight to your website or...? Yeah, straight to the website. The books are sold uh, directly through um, ballisticstudies.com. So, yep, you can find all that there. There's book bundles as well, so they can get discounts on the bundles and there's e-books and, and paperbacks. With the um, series, it, it was originally written um, rifles, then cartridges, accurizing, then reloading and shooting. And it starts gently, and then as you get further and further into it, it's... It, gets into the more complex subjects. So if a person has trouble, uh, trouble reading, starting with rifles is the best way to go. It just gently eases them into it. Yeah, and, that, and that's from people that, you know, may be into shooting, that maybe don't, you know, beginners to advanced, basically? Yeah, it is for beginners all the way through, and the, the point is it should help save the reader money long-term because through cutting through all, all of that rubbish, um, rifles, for example, that's a buyer beware. So the point is that a little, little bit of money spent now and a, a bit of time spent reading can save you a number of years of uh, frustrations and um, wasted money. So yep. it doesn't really matter whether you're hunting just out to 300 yards or whether you want to shoot to 1,000 yards. The, the long-range... Um, heading on, on the books, it, it, I mean, that does apply, but uh, it doesn't have to apply, you know. It's just about having an accurate rifle, a, a good tool that you can use. Yeah, but I think if people, you know, maybe unsure about the books or they're going, well, who is this Nathan guy? I just urge people to jump on YouTube and watch some of your stuff there. I think they'll, they'll come to the conclusion by the end of it that they'll want to purchase some of your books, I think. That's what I reckon. Yeah, um, some of the, the recent streams, I think, Maybe some of those um, things I talk about, we just jump straight into sometimes complex subjects um, with reloading. That can be a, a little bit daunting, and that's quite understandable. If, if you if you watch that sort of thing and you find it all confusing, I get that. But in the book series, what I try to do is just keep everything simple. So let's start with the, the most simple gear, basic gear, and then slowly build on that. and. And often what I'm doing is um, if something looks 
complicated. It's because it's it's a process of problem solving. We're not uh, just getting a gun and going straight and neck turning brass straight away and doing all, all these sort of things that uh, that would be akin to bench rest shooting. We're not really doing that. We don't start that that way. You start with the basics and get that platform right. Get yourself right. That's the big one. And uh, Derive some pleasure from it. Get into the, the joy of it. And then as you get further into it, then you can start adding these things into it when you're ready. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I always jump on the internet, and the, probably the biggest question you'll see on there and the, the biggest issue people fighting about seems to be um, you know, hunting cartridges, what makes a good you know, uh, cartridge. So, I mean, is there any preferred, you know, medium, short, medium and long-range hunting cartridges? Obviously, we're talking about maybe medium and long-range shooting here today, but is there any preferred hunting cartridges? I think, do you think people get a bit bogged down and weighed down with uh, specifically with cartridge selection? I think it's becoming a problem now because everything has been dumbed down. So um, we've been told that we need a lighter rifle and... Uh, the reason why we're told that is because it, it saves the manufacturer on materials. So it's a win for them because they're spending less on the rifle and they're telling you that, you, you know, you need this lightweight. And so you get this lightweight gun and, and it kicks you into next week. So <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> is, the next step is, well, you need this lighter cartridge so the cartridges get smaller. And so we just keep going around and around and down and down we go, down the hole. Yeah, so um, I'm not, not too uh, confident in where things are going. And um, there's just so much effort being put into promoting cartridges that common sense should dictate. We, we know these cartridges inside and out, such as, for example, the 300 Blackout. Um, people talk about it as if it's something new. And we've had the 3030, the 7.62x39, cartridges that have been around for um, you know 70 to 100 years now or more um, but they're bandied about as if there's something new well there's nothing new there at all but um, it's the way things are packaged and I guess the industry does have to it has to invigorate itself in order to to survive and thrive but um, it's the the way in which it, we're invigorating it I believe it's wrong and it's taking us to a place where we don't necessarily want to be going. And if, if we keep going down that path, it, I don't think it's going to be very good because I, I think that the the manufacturers, and, and I'm speaking of the ammunition manufacturers, if they keep going down this path, um, they're, they're actually losing touch with the product themselves. And um, there, there might come a time when they, they don't actually know how to, um, how to keep this going because instead of... Um, pushing themselves into a flourishing market they've actually backed themselves into a corner with their marketing yeah it's interesting so, that isn't it too where you know all these new calibers i mean not only the expense of brass and things like that but um you know uh, i just try and stick to i've got one i guess inconspicuous caliber sort of a 260 in that 6.5 range but you know i mean what sort of would people be looking at the start is it good to stick to you know your general workhorses that have been available for years you know maybe your seven mils maybe your, you know, your 308s your, your 300 winchester magnums or your is there anything where people should start or where do you think they should start well, it depends on the, the local game, of course, because you've got to um, select a cartridge that's suitable for the animal and the ranges. 
that you're hunting at. But for a starting point, you just can't go wrong with the uh, 308. There's, there's just no way you can go wrong with that. And you can build on that. You can add other cartridges or rifles to that later. But as a foundation for starting, that really is a great place to, to start with. And the rifle options and ammunition options are just fantastic. And the bullet weights are suitable for a very wide range of animals. And also during times of economic hardship or um, problems with trade, and international trade and so forth, 308 is probably the easiest to keep um, supplied and uh, so that you've always got that ammunition through financial crises and things like that. So, yeah, yeah 308 is a good starting point, but I, I don't like to um, nominate one cartridge as being better than all the others. It's just a, a place to start. And I think if you if you go that way, you'll never regret it. That's the key. It's just something you, you will never regret. Yeah. I know. Sometimes I think we're always looking after the, the next bigger and better thing. I've bought a cartridge and thought, oh, no, I need this cartridge. So I've sold that and bought this. Then I realise, you know what? You know, just use what you've got. Stop, stop being a dick, and you know, use what you've got, and just, you know, get get used to that, experience that, learn that, and then maybe you know later on down the track if that's something you want to do. But inevitably, if I've left it, I haven't wanted to do that. I've enjoyed what I've been shooting. But I mean, is there anything that defines, you know, a good caliber? Is that performing at long long range? Is there any specifics that make it good? Like compared to say something in maybe you know the same style or, or same caliber. I guess, or maybe a little bit different, but in the, you know, you've got plenty of 6.5s, for an example. You've got like, yeah, 260, 6.555, the new Creedmoors, for an example. Yeah, and people say, oh, one's better than the other. But is, it, is there any defining factors, would you say, on a specific cartridge that make them better? Say, like in the 300s, where I don't see a lot of people using 3006, for an example, for long range shooting, but they do use a lot of 308. So is there any defining factors yeah. there? Um, to me, the defining factors are the projectile design, that's the primary factor, and then the um, the energy, the retained energy of that projectile, but that retained energy relative to the ability of that to cause expansion and or fragmentation at the required range. Now, a lot of people think they understand that, but um, a lot of people don't. Uh, in order to use a cartridge at long range, you actually have enough energy you need enough energy at that range to get that bullet to expand. And a lot of the cartridges we're using now, they don't have that energy. So not only are you um, failing to generate a, a wide wound as in the absence of hydraulic force, but there's just there's not enough mechanical force there. There's no fragmentation. There's, there's nothing there to, to actually generate that large wound. So, um, yeah, projectile first and then the actual design of it. And then... Energy requirements, that's the big one. And if you don't know anything about cartridges and don't want to know, all I would say is that without knowing anything, if you wanted to get it right, you just say 160 grains, nothing below that, and that's it. For medium game and up, so that's where you start. And that, you know, after all these years of research, it's as simple as that in some ways. But, you know, just to come up with an answer like that, there's a lot, a lot involved in that answer, but that's that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, glad you brought it up because I really want to expand on bullets, and that's eventually how um, I found your YouTube channel and eventually found out about you and you know shooting, you know match bullets, 
performance over hunting bullets, which I found just insanely riveting, to be honest with you. Um, most people yeah. may not, but I did. I certainly did. And um, you actually keeping the animals out and showing the damage. So can we expand on – I've got a bunch of questions here about bullets. Just how do match bullets perform versus hunting bullets? And, and basically, do match bullets expand and have the right – knockdown power and should we should we be selecting a match bullet should we where should we use that where should we use a hunting bullet um are, 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 well, first, can we well, use them both you know first of all um you need to be clear that whatever's written on the box has no bearing on how that bullet will perform so if the box says uh, sorry if the box says long range hunting bullet on it ignore it it, it means nothing it, that's their marketing that doesn't mean that it's any good for that doesn't matter what tests they show, what gelatin they show, what video of an elk they've shown you, you don't know that. They've just written that on the box. And a lot of these companies who have this stuff written on their boxes, it, it does have absolutely no relevance to um, to long-range hunting performance whatsoever. So that's the, the first thing that you need to be absolutely clear on. And then when it comes to the actual bullet design, yes, some match bullets are very good um, because they they are able to dump their energy at long ranges due to the nature of that bullet. But some brands of match bullet, even if they're advertised as being good for long-range hunting, are not good. So, yes, that, that's the thing. And then with hunting bullets, um, that are, you know, the traditional bullets that are, that are designed for hunting, yes, some are okay for long ranges, but um, uh, some aren't because the, the jackets are simply too thick to actually... Uh, to work at those long ranges because you really need to be dumped at long range. You need to be dumping a very, very high amount of energy. You want, you know, up to 50% or more weight loss from that bullet in order to generate a large wound in the absence of hydraulic force. And that is relative to the hydraulic force that it had at high velocity. So um, if we take uh, your 260, for example, Muzzle velocity is going to be about 27, 20 feet per second with a 140 grain bullet. And you uh, picked it exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did have the 143 in ELDX at the moment, but I'd love to go back to the 140 ELDM, be honest. But anyway, sorry, continue. Well, over a shorter distance, um, there's a huge amount of hydraulic force there. So just the act, just the sheer um, action of that bullet mushrooming and changing its form that bullet's dumping energy through that and so you're getting wounding up to say two and a half, three inches in diameter inside that animal which results in fast bleeding and therefore fast killing. So even if the bullet is um, is just mushrooming, you know, you're getting that effect. And that effect goes down to about somewhere between oh, let's say about 2,400 feet per second and then you'll start to really see a wane at 2,200. Um, with a once you lose that ability to generate that hydraulic force, then you you need mechanical force, mechanical action. So that's just cutting flesh, the, the sheer act of physical action. And so um, in order to achieve that, the bullet needs to be able to, to break up to do that. And uh, so a lot of people over the years have said they don't like this or that bullet because it breaks up. Well, sorry, but if you want to actually make that kill at a lower velocity, then you're going to have to use a bullet that breaks up. Otherwise, the wound will be proportionate to the uh, diameter of the expander bullet. So rather than, let's say we had your 143-grain ELDX producing a 3-inch wound, 
at longer ranges that that won't mainly be relative to that or that mushroom bullet. So it, it might be um, half inch or something like that. Well, the EODX is not not such a bad bullet, but there are other bullets out there that will retain a lot more weight and they produce a, a very very narrow wound, you know, a half inch at, at most, and so that that will uh, cause a very very slow kill. Um, but the problem is, I, I I have said it previously. I think it was another podcast that the bullet makers they they know all this stuff and they know how to design a good bullet. And we've got the likes of Hornady producing the ELDX, for example. They know what's required. Sierra they produced the Game King, and for a long time they they knew that they needed the bullet to break up in order for it to produce the fast kill that they were looking for. And even though the um, hunters expect deep penetration and all this and they want high weight retention uh, Sierra just went ahead and, and produced the bullet that they knew worked so what I've said in the past is that it's there's a difference between what hunters want and what hunters need yeah right but as we're moving further ahead my concern is that um, new uh, new staff members in these companies may not have that same understanding and as we as they move towards more uh, copper-based bullets, um, and without that information, they're not doing themselves any favours because as they market these things, being able to do this, this, and this, um, well, those bullets actually can't do that, and you haven't tested that, and you can't say that. And um, if you keep saying that, what you're going to do is lose lose most of your market because you could end up with all your other bullets being banned because you've gone and told everyone how great your copper bullets are. And the day you actually have to go out and use them and find that they don't work, you've got nothing back, nothing else to fall back on. Whereas had you actually understood the bullets that you have in your existing inventory a bit better, you might have been able to, one, defend the bullets that you have and retain those bullets in the face of environmentalists trying to change things around at the expense of the animal welfare. And two, if you did have to change to a new bullet design, you'd actually put some bloody effort into it and make something that actually works. So there's a there's a lot going on there and a lot we have to think about in the future. But for the um, with for your listeners, what I would say is to try and put more time into observation and to actually understanding how um, how the bullets work. This is the information age, and um, this is the type of information that you can really put to work. Not you know googling some stupid tactical stock or some rubbish that you think is going to enhance your life. Actually learn about this stuff. I mean, I put a lot of that stuff for free on our website uh, in the um, game killing section and the fundamental section of the website. It's in the books as well. And we go into great depth into it with uh, put that into use in the shooting book. But, you know, I've put a lot of information for free out there through the website and YouTube and so forth. Yeah, it's amazing how, you know, I guess technology. I mean, I look at some of these companies and things they're coming out. I mean, what would be the purpose, I mean, of, you know, like when we talk about, you know, match bullets, and I guess you know, expanding, or you said breaking apart at longer ranges. I mean, what what would why would someone want to use, say, you know, a match bullet? Is it purely to get the benefits out of the you know ballistic coefficient of that bullet? I mean, I know probably <laughs> manufacturers. You know, maybe they're legitimate. I don't know. Maybe they embellish their numbers a little bit on their BCs, but I'm not 100 percent sure, so I can't say. But um, what's the benefit? Is it because of the BC that we want a, a, the the best bullet flying? as best as it can through the air to, to get to that target as most you know, as accurately as possible? Well, to um, most 
long-range shooters, that's what they would state. I tend to disagree to some extent, but yeah, we, I mean, the point is to have um, the most accurate bullet with the highest BC and more than anything, the least wind drift because that's what's going to catch you every time. So, you know, that's a given. But um, it's, it's the performance, how the bullet performs when it arrives at the animal. That's all that matters at the end of the day. So um, some match bullets have quite thin jackets and so they transfer their energy very, very well. Not all of them, but some of them. And uh, so that's a, that's a key factor. But yeah, with the hunting bullets, you just you, you can't quite get that. Some of the hunting bullets have a thick jacket, and they also the BCs are quite limited, so you just you're not going to get there with that. And then some, as, as I said, like the copper bullets, for example, they um, they don't even perform at, at long ranges when they when they strike the animal. And uh, even though they're advertised as being able to do this and that, well, sure they can mushroom, but that doesn't mean they they produce a fast kill. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be long range either. I mean, that can be because we've got a new generation of low powered cartridges now. Yeah, is there? Um, a, I got an interesting question that you brought up just a bit earlier as well. Um, well, not this part of it, but obviously, you know, knocking power down range. But what about and wind actually? But what about speed versus weight? So, like example, um, you know, just bought a I think it's a Bagara B fourteen. So I'm going to run a 208 grain in the um in the 300 Winchester Magnum. So is that is it? Is that going to be more affected by wind? Is it better to go on the, a mid-range spectrum, you know, like weight, as in you said, like 160 or we'll go 180 for the 300, but then you're sort of not getting the BC, so I've upped it to 208, but is that going to be more affected by wind and not have enough? You know, is the weight well, going to compensate use, for hitting power, et cetera? Or? Weight overcomes everything at the end of the day. So um, if you have a 208-grain bullet, then it lessens your need for... Um, good bullet construction. The more bullet weight you have, the less you need to worry about penetration. So it's that's a very good bullet weight for the 300. Yeah. And you could run 180 grain a lot faster, but the BC will be a lot lower, so there's, there's no real point to it. All you're doing is booting out the throat for no good reason. And with a bullet like the 208 grain, you, you're able to achieve uh, wide wounding on a very wide range of game animals across a wide range of um, impact velocities. So you, what you're gaining for that weight is uniformity. It's, it, it doesn't, uh, its performance doesn't change under different conditions. I mean, it will have its limitations. It's, you have to be mindful of that bullet on Samba at close ranges. But other than that, yeah. it's, a, it's a very good bullet and it can be used under a, a variety of conditions. But in your 300 wood mag, it'll probably take the the 225 grain ELDM as well. So, you know, you've got both those options, but that where you're at now, this is a good starting point. So stick with it. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, I just, I saw that because people were saying, well, why don't you go the, because I think I originally had the um, <clears throat> a ticker T3X and it's not really a true long action. And then I was seeding bullets going, well, this magazine, you know, and maybe I'm concentrating too much on seeding depth. I don't know, but, um, you know, it's not a true long action. So I was sitting there going, well, I've got to seat these at like 3340, um, which yeah, is the which right. is the max magazine length. If I don't 
want it to be a single shot gun. And even when I was, uh, even when I did seat them out sort of further out, um, when you're ejecting you know, to like 35, 50 or something, I think my lands was, you know, 35, 90, almost yeah. 3,600. Uh, when yeah. I actually go to pull the bolt up and pull them out, as they go to flick out, like through the side of the, the action, the tips yeah. are hitting the side of the action. So the best I can really get, even as a single shot for the, for the bullet to eject is about 35, 25. So I'm still... And maybe I'm concentrating too much on the lands as well, but 35, say 20, sorry, 35, 25. So it's still 75, 80 thou uh, off the lands. Yeah, and I thought, right. nah, stuff this, it's gone. I've lost 500 bucks. I want to go, I really want to run 208 or, or 200 plus. So it's gone and out with the old, in with the new. Well, in this case, out with the new and in with the new. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that, and that is the way they go. With the Bagara, um, I think there is a bit of a variation between the. Um, the box magazine and the detachable magazine models, but you can get a lot close to the lands. But even if you couldn't get close to the lands, um, one could um, alter the um, the magazine box with a a white magazine. Yeah, great part about that too was the fact that it does run on those external AICS mags at 3,600. So I think I'm yeah. running them at 30, 35, 80 or 85 or something like that, right max magazine length. And I thought, well, you know, we'll see how it goes. I'm, to be honest, I haven't shot it yet. I've had it for about a month and a half now and I haven't even shot it. So once I do, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to see the, the benefits. And that's what I thought with the 260 as well. I thought, well, I'm running 143s. Don't get me wrong, they've been pretty good at, at least at um, you know medium ranges on sort of you know rabbits I haven't you know I don't think I'm at the experience yet to sort of be out at that you know 500 meters but I'm hitting you know gongs and and you know like 10 inch gongs at five six hundred meters consistently with every shot so I'm I'm building that confidence but I thought to myself if I ever burn that barrel out or if I want to go back I may go to the may go to the the, the 140 grain because it's still got great BC my mate loves the yeah. 147s you know he swears by the 147s yeah I've, the 147s good option as well mm, yeah. I, th I think the the a tip stuff I mean you know it's expensive a lot of people can't really afford it Are we really is it, is it just a gimmick well I don't know maybe that's something you might be able to elaborate on because you know cost versus a Effectiveness, you know the A tips, the new A tips. I mean, you're paying double. I don't know what they're in New Zealand, but we double the price, same as here in Australia. So, that's right. You know, yeah. is it really? Is it really all these? You know, I'm not saying it's a gimmick. I'm just saying, you know, is it really? You know, worth it to step up in that price bracket? And what extra benefit is there? One percent, two percent, nothing. It could be, could even be worse. Who knows? Yeah. If you, well, if you were trying to win a match, and uh, and you can see a perceivable edge there, then. Uh, yes, it might be worth it for you, but um, I think for I think as you've said, a lot of people have drawn that same conclusion that it's too expensive. And the trouble is that um, with that expense, we generally uh, start to back off on practice in order to save money. Well, practice is what's going to um, win the day every time. So <laughs> it exactly. can be a little bit better to, to work with something that's more affordable. 100%. Uh, the, the aluminium tipped Amex was the first design, so... I don't know why they, I mean, I saw a lot of guys and a couple of guys that I follow too were big fans of the, the AMAX and I just don't know why they, I don't know if that's been rebranded, quote unquote, to a, a more expensive bullet in the ELDM, but, you know, a lot of people swore by the, the hunting benefits of the AMAX and then, you know, the buggers discontinued it. Apparently a lot of people are pretty pissed off about that. Well, no, it hasn't been discontinued. It, it has just been relabeled. So it was the AMAX, now it's the ELDM. Yep. But it, it's, historically... 
the Amex came out with an aluminium tip in the beginning. And then they moved to a plastic tip in all uh, calibers except for the 50 caliber. So the 750 grain that retained its aluminium tip. So the Amex then had the red plastic tip for a number of years. And um, that was the same basic bullet design as employed in the VMAX and in the TAP tactical um, ammunition for police. And then uh, when it was uh, a little while ago, they, they made some refinements and they used the, the heat shield tip as well. A few bullets got a little bit of a tweak here and there, but generally it's the same bullet. Um, so in essence, it's just rebranded. Um, so the ELDM is, is the final, well, the current iteration. And then we see it go full circle with the A-tip. Which exactly. is a premium version using the aluminium tip. I, mean, yeah. I, I can't really complain with the the Hornady stuff. I mean, I've used I'm using some Sierras in the two four three, some seventy grain Blitzes, Blitz Kings, but I'm, you know, the things are playing up on me a little bit with the two four three at the moment with a bit of a bit of spread sometimes in the you know sometimes up to eighty feet a second. So I don't know what the issue is there. I'm trying to figure that out, but I'm thinking about <clears throat> maybe I've always had good results with the eighty seven grain V Max and just Hornady stuff in general. I think every time I've yeah. pulled a Hornady bullet out and I've shot it. Um, you know, obviously on the spectrum of doing my own hand loads and stuff, I've never had to change a bullet weight. I've never had to change a powder. Uh, somewhere along that node or spectrum, whatever you want to call it, I've always found a pretty good results getting, you know, some of these ticker rifles as well, some of the smaller ones that I've got, like the 260. They've just performed. They've just, you know, you know, very low standard deviation and not much spread and mate i've gotten you know quarter inch to, to half inch groups and i can't complain with that from a factory rifle no, really so. fantastic. absolutely fantastic <laughs> i can't complain at all so people say i think uh, that's the thing uh nathan some people say well you know one inch but i think our one inch i think is pretty now that i think about it over the years i think you know one inch is good i mean maybe our expectations especially mine i'm not sure about yours but you know we we're expecting again a, a bullet to you know or, or, uh, yeah to shoot like you know 0.1 inch groups or something like that and, and how much we spend trying to get that i think i read an article a couple of years ago and very very good article about you know basically aim for the half inch you know because anything beyond that it's a point of diminishing returns and you know spits yeah, sending money down range constantly, you know, in the hopes of getting, you know, a quarter inch group or a point two inch group or whatever is just, you know, is, is sometimes they say is, is wasted time. You know, you spend more time practicing with a with a half inch group that you can consistently shoot on a consistent basis and go from then. You're still going to get some fantastic results. Yeah, well, when we were guiding, um, I was talking about uh, being the Buono, and, and I really wanted to get the guys, I, I said to the guys as they would come, you need to have your rifle shooting one inch at 100 yards because the um, average range of encounter here is going to be about 300 yards and so that would mean a three inch group at the range but then with wind drift error and human error I would anticipate that your field accuracy is going to be six inches at 300 yards. So at that time that was fine, but then as we started uh, getting into long range, teaching long range, then um, I brought those expectations for the client well down. Um, but it just depends on how far you want to shoot, of course. But if possible, I try and work down below a half inch because there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, with uh, ES, of course, that's going to add further a deviation. So if you're you know, one shot's 3,000 feet per second and the other shot's 
3,020-something feet per second, well, you're going to see some deviation at long range just because of that. So that's going to open up that group. And then you've got human error as well and uh, wind drift error. Um, and also, um, you've, over time, you've got uh, barrel wear. So if your rifle starts out at 0.6, of an inch, then and it's you know it's your long range magnum, perhaps in uh, three or four hundred shots it might be at 0 0.7, 0 0.8. So I would rather have uh, my man start at 0 0.2, 0 0.3, um, and then you know then he, as this, these errors come into it, it's having less of an effect downrange. But to get to that um, 0 0.2, 0 0.3 sort of area, that's a whole other game compared to where we were. You know, expecting a pick at 300 yards. So the further you you want to push it, the the more I um, lift these expectations of the um, of the person that I'm teaching. But I don't uh, I don't go about it in, in ways that are so complicated that it's a, an impossible goal. Um, yeah, so we we just stick to basic factors. But what what I tend to say because a lot of people hear that and they think, oh, I can't, I can't be bothered with that. I, I don't. Want to, I just want to get the rifle and go out and shoot. But I, I say to them, well, you want to take the life of this animal. You know, it's been living its life for however many years, minding its own business, and then along comes pork chop, and he decides that he wants to take this animal's life. The least that bastard can do is get off his ass yep. and work out how to make that rifle shoot properly. That's the very least you can do to show respect for that animal. Mm. You can do that by putting time into it, not clicking on rubbish and buying yourself bubble levels and all this crap, but actually putting time into learning how to shoot straight, learning what matters, what fundamentals actually matter. Get your bedding right, get your trigger right, get your optics fitted up right and set where they're supposed to be. Get rid of that stupid bipod, get rid of that ugly, ridiculous muzzle brake that's actually making you flinch. Get that rifle over a backpack or first get onto sandbags and get your technique right. Once you get your technique right, you've got all these other factors taken care of and triggers and, and good nick and you've got trigger control and all these things are happening. Then you start focusing on your loads, bringing those down, and then, you, then finally you can start reaching out to more and more, more uh, ranges, you know. And as for the optics and, and, um, and your, your charts, just basic optics with a good reticle, nothing fancy, none, none of this electronic stuff, none of this CDS where it does all the thinking for you crap. You need to know what's going on out there. You need to be aware, self-awareness, awareness of what's going on around you. You need to be involved in what you're doing, immersed in it. And you can't immerse yourself into it, into your environment, if you're looking at some screen, relying on that to do your thinking. And so with these phones, put the bloody phone in your pack. It's <laughs> yeah. no good to you. Yeah. It's there for your survival. Yeah. You make yourself a set of drop charts. And yes, you will have to use a computer to do that. You do that at home in your own time. You learn how to make that chart, and you make it in such a way that it works like an abacus. And then you learn how to use that abacus for the varying conditions in the field so that you're not only accurate, but you're fast and accurate. Yeah. And then you have that, that's all ready to go. And that scope, you have to learn how to dial that. 
and how to aim off for the wind using your reticle. And then you get up in that position early and then you put all of your attention into awareness, all of it. You listen to everything, the, the wind, the birds, the animal sounds, the planes miles away. You, you just completely immerse yourself in what you're doing and you look and you look to the left, to the middle, to the right, at eye level, down. You focus on your area where you are, your middle ground, the background where you're expecting targets, and you just fully embrace that, and you, you live it, you breathe it. I mean, that's what you wanted to do. You wanted this experience, so be a part of it. Yeah, um, I, think, yeah. I, think, I think we forget that. I think we forget... You know, and I've succumbed to those some of those things you just said. So, you know, some people might listen to this and go, oh, you know, I'm offended. But, you know, I'm a guy that's, you know, using muzzle brakes. I'm a guy that's using some of this fan-dangled equipment. And, but I think you're 100% right. I think, you know, it's getting back to getting back to basics. And, um, you know. basically getting back to having respect, too. Like yep. I said, the animal that you don't that. And the animal spent its whole life doing that. Mm. And you come along all entitled with all the shit that you've just bought. <laughs> and you think this animal is just going to roll over and die for you. And mm. what? Right, do you have? You know, what makes you deserve that? You know, what have you done to actually, you know, make yourself worthy of that? You know, you've got to lift your game. True. So yeah, that's yep. what I ask. And when you do that, that's when you'll feel that real sense of joy and accomplishment. It's different to the, the sense of immediate gratification of, oh, I just pulled off that shot and, and now what's next? Well, what's on TV tonight? Or, now this is different. It, you really feel like you've you've achieved something. And you know, we talk about in, in this um, call and other podcasts. You, people ask me about your life, uh, my life. You know, how did you get into hunting? How did you? Well, you know, I'm only telling you the half of it. You, you, if you really want to know what kind of a person I am, I, I really push to get to those truths. You know, because. That's where I find the the reward is. It's it's not uh, how much does Nathan know, and Nathan knows more than someone else. That therefore that makes him more worthy of uh, whatever than someone else. I mean, if you want to collect information, go for it. You you just be some other idiot blowhard out there with all the others that have lots of information and can answer questions, and one day might appear on some stupid mastermind TV program. It's not. It's not like that. You want to get to the core of things. So you want to be stripping away. That's, that's the key. So that when you finally get out there and you take that shot, it's just you, the environment, the animal, and you're, you're watching it. And you, you're really in tune with that moment. That's what you want. I know it sounds almost a bit esoteric, but these days we, we just get too far removed. I mean, I know some people go, oh, that's capitalism and not. I don't give a shit about all that. I'm just talking about what you're doing. And yes, you can use all this gear. There's some great gear to do that with. So we can't go, oh, bloody capitalism or whatever, and marketing. We take that gear, but then use it to empower you, not disempower you. That's the key. Yeah, yeah perfect, man. I, um, you know, I think I've done about 225 episodes over... 10 years and I don't think anyone's been as honest or as raw as you so it's good if I can hold on to you just for say another 10 to 15 minutes mate um, a couple more questions I want to finish off with but I might just go to my last break Nathan will come back mate and then we'll we'll start to finish off 
Even though they're back in business, the closure of gun shops in three states during the coronavirus pandemic was an attack on every shooter's right to go shooting. That's why the National Shooting Council is taking legal action so that it doesn't happen again. The NSC is also leading the fight to stop the reclassification of firearms and is providing important voting advice for every shooter in every state, territory and federal election coming up. That's why the NSC is the leading political organisation for shooters across Australia. So support its work by becoming a member today. For more information, go to nationalshooting.org.au. Nathan, I wanted to bring up something you brought up very well too and something that's very important, I guess, as part of your, your shooting is optics you were talking about as well. Um, yeah. you know, a lot of people are going to go out there and spend, you know, f- you know four or $5,000 on, on, on equipment, which is fine if they've got that sort of money. But, you know, what are we sort of looking at? And I did, I felt great actually. You know, I had a, did have a bit of a giggle. Don't uh, don't take it the wrong way. But uh, I, I saw one of your videos and I had a Citron S3 and then I watched one of your videos and I, I saw you talking about the Citron S3 and I thought, oh, good. I've actually got one he's using, and that could, if he's using it, must be good enough for an idiot like me then. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, with the scopes, I, I like to keep it quite basic. Um, eye relief is the first consideration for me, um, more than anything else, because if, you, if your scope's got short eye relief and you're using a high powered rifle, um, that's going to cause a flinch and you're not going to shoot well. So that's number one. Optical clarity, of course, is important. Um, and then robustness, you know, re- reliability. But um, it's actually getting hard now to find a scope with decent eye relief for uh, for high-powered rifles, such as um, your Bagara 300. Um, yeah, that's, if you if you are going scope shopping at the moment, go to the manufacturer, go to the page, and then click on uh, technical specifications, and then scroll down to where it says eye relief. If Really, you want to be around about 3.8 to 4 inches. You, there are some that are listed at uh, 3.6 to 3.8. I think the S3 6 to 24 is listed at um, yeah 3.6 to 3.8 inches. But actually, in practice, you can you can sit them quite a way forwards. So that one's not so bad. But th- there are a lot of others out there with quite shocking eye relief, and they will make you a poorer shooter. And then what ends up happening is the person uh, thinks there's something wrong either with them or that this cartridge is so powerful they can't handle it. They then attach a muzzle brake to the rifle and then the muzzle brake creates a concussion wave which makes them blink and close their eyes and they don't realise that they've actually got another flinch that they're just not even aware of. And so the shooting continues to to deteriorate. So um, even within one brand, so let's say Leopold for example, you know, look at the various models and then look within the brand, within the models, and just compare. And so if you're shooting a high-powered rifle, but even on a 308, I think, you, you know, you really want to go for the longer eye relief just to get that, um, to make sure that that scope's versatile because, you know, you might be shooting with uh, pack-on and pack straps versus um, in a prone position or other positions. So you, you don't really know what position you're going to be on on the day. So you need that sort of versatility within that. You need to to be able to have that scope positioned correctly, well away from your eye. And and then for long range, I just personally I prefer um, minutes of angle to mil radians, but that's only because I'm used to working in yards. People who are in um, European countries that prefer to work with mil radians because that's with a centimetre metric system and metres, it all works together. So that's fine. I mean, that's a personal choice. But um, 
The other thing to watch out for is first focal versus second focal plane. Some of the first focal plane scopes, when you zoom out, the um, the reticle is still true to its its units. So yep. let's say it's a, you know got one one MOA hash marks for windage. You you dial that from twenty down to five or something like that, and, and it's still one MOA whether it's at five power or twenty power. But the problem is the reticle gets too thin for you to use in low light. That's the one to be aware of. And what I would add to that is, um, don't rate things like zero stops and and first focal plane as things that you absolutely have to have, because actually what they those things are, uh, often they're, they're useful in lieu of good training. If you have a, a drop chart and you've noted where your zero is, you don't need a zero stop. If you are trained in using, well trained in using your scope, then you'll understand that as the light diminishes at night and you have to dial back, you should be able to dope your wind drift and feet because you're not shooting at a thousand yards now, you're shooting at Three to four hundred, and if you can't work out your wind at three to four hundred and feet, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. So you, you know, the need for first focal plane might be good for the new recruit soldier, but again, I put the onus on you to really lift your game. You don't need these things. So uh, if the option options there for a second focal plane, which is going to have a much bolder crosshair. The crosshair doesn't disappear when you zoom down. Take that, because there's going to be the better scope for hunting in low light. We're not all bloody Chris Kyle, you know. Might think we <laughs> want to be him, but we're not. You know, yeah, freaking hunters. So get real. Yeah. And another interesting part about that too is. What about that? Like, obviously, when you go hunting, you know, I, I, hey, I've made this mistake. Don't worry about that. I mean, some of my, I guess some of my sort of longer range targets, a bit of a, they're a bit of a mixture, I say, if the opportunity arises. But I've got a couple of, I went a bit crazy too. And I probably didn't need that, you know, a couple of 34 mil tubes on one. Um, but I've really just sort of gotten down to that 30 mil, I think, you know, for, for weight. You know the vastness of the scope and how big it is and how heavy it is. You know, I'm I'm preferring the 30s, but is there a difference between you know, the other the old traditional one inch, the 30 mil, and then getting into the you know the sort of quote unquote tactical scopes that say you yeah, know the 34 few, mil. There's a few uh, differences. This one thing is actually strength. There's, there is more strength in the 30 mil scope compared to a 25 mil. Um, so if, if you're in need of um, that robustness especially for places like the South Island of New Zealand where scopes often take a, a good knock against rocks when you're climbing and things like that. Well, 30 mil can be useful. But as you say, that that adds bulk but, and weight. But what you can do is you can mix and match things these days. So as these rifles are getting lighter and smaller and piddlier, let's take their ticker T3, for example. Well, if you put a, a 20 power or a 24 power scope on a T3 light, well, that actually balances out the overall weight of that rifle quite nicely, and it, it, it can just make it into a, a nicer rifle to use. So um, while it might take a little bit to get used to, uh, optics like that can, can work really well on those rifles. But then on, on some other rigs, you know, it just gets too much. By the time you've put a Remington 700 together with a, a big glass stock or something with an alley chassis, and then you put a night force on it, 
and it's got a bull barrel or something, well, then you can't carry it anywhere. It's too much. So. <laughs> that's like the that's like the Bagara at the moment. It's got a <laughs> a big four and a half to, to 30. So it's really just there's the car, there's the ground, that's where it stays, you know. Is your Bagara the heavy barrel model? Yeah, the, the B14 HMR, yeah, yeah. And has it got a muzzle brake on it? I do at the moment, but it's I could I just I, I could take it off. I, I, I'm going to try it with it and try it without and see what the difference is with the 208s because I've never I've never had a um you know like a, a 300 win mag. I do have the Ticker T3X. I just got not long ago seven mil rem mag. Uh, that's just the light Tika stainless, just running yeah. a um, Zeiss. I think it's the V4 4 to 16 by 44. Um, with about one inch of eye relief. <laughs> is it? Is it? Well, just might as well nugget up your eyes now. Just get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> what, on the Zeiss, is it? Is it? Yeah, uh, well, it's about two and a half inches, I think, something like that. From memory, I can't, I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. So, this is one of the common mistakes. You shoot a rifle like that. So, the Ticker T3 Simulary Mag beats yeah. you next week. So, then the guy says, and then to make it matters worse, you then put on a scope like that. And then this thing's this, this terrifying thing that sits in the cupboard and leers it. <laughs> so then you think the fix is going to be a muzzle brake, so you put that on it and you introduce two problems immediately. The first problem is that it creates flinch because of the, you know, the concussion wave that comes back. Yet I know there's a whole heap of guys out there saying, no, that's not true, but I don't give a shit. It's what's true. And the second problem is that because it's uh, a rather um, thin barrel, if you cut threads on the end of that barrel, then there's a risk of those threads, that threaded area swelling and that becoming bell mouthed at the muzzle with time. Yep, I've heard about that, yeah, yep. So how, how do we unravel all of that? Okay, so we go back to the scope first. That comes off and that gets thrown away and you put something on with a longer eye relief and heavy. So yeah, good, good heavy scope, long eye relief. Get it well forwards. And then um, muzzle brake. Yeah, well, it's, it's cut now, so I mean, you, you could keep it on there, but you need to monitor what's going on. And so, what that requires is a different level of awareness. Where you, at the moment you may have an assumption because you've been told, and so you, you pretend to believe it that this reduces recoil. Yes, it may have reduced recoil at the shoulder, but when you go to the range next, you be aware of is, has this actually created another flinch. Especially in Australia, because if you get down onto the ground, it's different on the bench, but on the ground, when you have to use it, how much of that dust is coming back in your eyes? How long are you keeping your eyes closed after you pull the trigger? Yeah, that's are right. you actually yep. able to actually get back on target and see what happened? I did notice that in one of my other YouTube videos, probably you know three, four months ago, that I made, I... Um, even with the two, four, three, you know, I like to, you know, if I'm shooting the rabbits, I guess sometimes I'll, you know, I mean, I don't really need it, you know, per se. And I'm going to try it without. I was thinking about this probably a couple of months ago as well. I was trying it without it. People say, well, why would you use a muzzle brake with a 70 grain Blitz King? And I thought, true, but my only rings, when you're looking at rabbits at 250 meters, sometimes losing that sight picture with just that little bit of movement you know, yep. can can cause me a few problems in you know having to go. Well, did I you know did I hit it? Did I see that last at the second? Is it you know because especially yep. when I used to run the eighty fives, I think it was the Hollow Point boat tails from Sierra. You know, it would you know I'd just, sometimes just move just enough that I'd lose, and I'd have to go back to my camera and see what I recorded to have a look, and then you know it was yep. purely just to spot shots. But um, I don't have the. Uh, um, muzzle brake on the seven mil. That's not cut at all yet. But the the Bagara does come with the standard. 
um, with stepped, a standard, yeah, yeah. standard and threading. It's, so. it's a hefty thread on the Bagara. So on a similar Remington Magnum, it's just just put your time into um, observing how that scope affects you when you shoot. And what I say with those is, uh, yeah, it's going to kick. You bought it. You own it. Yep. Deal with it. And just use it as it is. Yep. And get used to it and let it do its thing. And, um, you know, it can be quite a nice rifle, but you've got to lift your technique quite a bit to actually make the most of that rifle. 100%, but yeah. Just do the bare minimum with that rifle. That's the key. And just keep focusing on the technique and seeing what you can do with it. It's, and, uh, it's interesting. A lot of people don't know this sort of stuff, though. Like, you know, good scopes. I mean, some of the European manufacturers, like the ones we just mentioned as well. I mean, people, you know, there's some of these companies have, you know, very, very, you know, I guess, rich heritage in the and culture in the in the scope making industry. But then, just coming up with things like you just said about the the eye relief and stuff, and how you know some of the better ones, you know, may not necessarily have what you you're looking for for the application that you desire. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And with the um, with your three hundred Winchester medium, yeah, as you say, the thread is cut on that. So um, you try it with and without. So the two hundred and eight grain, um, realistically, you'll be in that sort of twenty eight, twenty nine hundred feet per second range. You can the Bagara stock's not too bad. You can manage the um, recoil of that with good technique. So um, you can try it with and without the brake. But again, be so be mindful of does the brake reduce recoil or does all that gas coming out through it actually cause something else? Is there a, like a feeling of having a blood nose and right in between your eyes? Is there a concussion slap there? Is it, yeah. is it making me close my eyes for a long time because of dust? So just be aware of all of those things as you're going through it. And you may not need it. But on those, they, they are a heavy rifle. And unfortunately, there's sort of no way around it unless they took that profile down a bit. It's, it's not going to be the greatest rifle for carrying long distances, but it's, it's a nicely laid out rifle. Um, one of the problems with that model is that they do sometimes um, need bedding. I had a client just the other day, he, he bought that model and he was expecting to go down to the range and shoot everything into a thumb hole, you know, group, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, thumbnail size group. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, I think it was grouping about 1.2, 1.5 inches. And um, <clears throat> that's actually, you know, 1.2, that's actually pretty good for a rifle out of the box these days um, with with one brand of ammunition that he tried. You know, he didn't even, it hasn't even been tried with a range of ammunition. So, but there's there's room there to build on it. You, know, you can build on that through hand loads. You can you can um, bed the rifle. But what I was going to say is that um, sometimes the Bagara rifle does need uh, action bedding to actually get it to that level that you're looking for. But as for that um, cartridge weight and that velocity, don't be too uh, too concerned about it. Just put your attention to technique because at that rifle weight you'll be able to roll back with it. It should just roll quite nicely. And the other mm-hmm. rifle that was nice to shoot um, in a similar configuration was the Remington Sendero and the Remington 5R. Yeah. But they're quite nice. They, as you as it goes, it just pushes you back, but you, you're not being beaten into next week by it. It's quite a quite a nice rifle to use. So 
Yeah, you'll have a bit of fun with that. Yeah, last two questions, I guess, but I want to ask one quick one about, you know, over, do we tend to overscope when we choose our, especially with power in regards to our scope selections? You know, like we got the, I got the Citron S3, as it said, 6 to 24. Um, do we tend to overscope sometimes? Do we tend to have too much scope or is it, you know, the, I, the 4 no, to 16s? I, I think that at the moment there's, uh, there's just not enough options out there. Um, there were some 16 power, some good 16 power scopes around for a while. One of the best ones was the Nikon. It was the Nikon Tactical. It was an amazing scope. It came and it went. I don't know why it went. Maybe it was a breach of patent or something someone else had. But that was a fantastic scope. But I, at the moment, I just think we don't quite have the selection um, and the configurations. Like you might be able to get something that's sort of 15 to 18 power, but you can't get the reticle that you want. Or there's this, these sort of niggles there at the moment, and I'm hoping that someone like Cytron will put out a um, an S3 16 power at some stage, but there's just nothing there at the moment. So I don't really think that's um, on the shooters. It's more just what's available at the moment to work with as far as the right kind of reticle and, and turrets go. It's, you know, there's limited options. But yeah, it would be nice to have um, a few more options at around that 16 power mark. I have a few here myself that I, I quite like to use. It's a, it's a good size, yeah. Yeah, it is too. Mate, last two questions, I guess. Um, top two to three tips for people wanting to start out. Obviously, buy your books is one of them, but what about just in, <laughs> what about just in general if they want to top two to three tips to, to start out? Start out in what in particular? Yeah, long just, range yeah, long range, medium, long range hunting or at least shooting to start with. Practice, obviously, just some general things that would get them started. I think the the first tip would be to consider 99% of everything they see, hear, and read about as being uh, potential rubbish, and just to go into it very, very carefully. There's a lot of people talking the talk, and uh, just watch people's body language too, and how they dress. And I mean, I know I wear some of that um, get up. Like I say, I've got my old scrubbers here, but just. Be very, very careful with who who you get advice from. Pick pick perhaps one person and, and just try and follow that through for a while, and then test that to see whether whether they uh, they really um, know what they're talking about. With the book series, the the reader is required to go away and acid test what I say, and that way he knows it for himself. It's not just Nathan said. So yeah, the book series do help a lot in, in that regard. But that would be my first piece of advice, is to just consider the vast majority of what we're seeing as being just rubbish. And secondly to that, um, it's about stripping away. You know, a lot of what you're trying to do is clear your head of of rubbish just to, to get to the truth of things. So, And look at what you can bring to the table. And then thirdly, I just keep it simple. You, you don't need a whole heap of gear, you know. You could start with, let's just say, the Bagara B14, just the standard rifle, not the heavyweight, just the standard gun. Yep. And then you work on that, and if you, you start shooting it, and if it's not right, you look at your technique, you look at the bedding, you look at the trigger, you, you just start going through it bit by bit by bit. And so that's what you're bringing to the table. You, you started with the Bagara, but everything else from there, that's up to you to, to start working on those things. And it's true. Shipping. 
I think that's probably the biggest thing we overlook, isn't it? You know, practice and and and, and getting used to recoil. I think you're right. I think we shy away from a lot of this yeah. stuff sometimes. I think you're right, and try to make our lives easier. Which you're right. I never thought about that before. Can make you know, can make us either into not better shooters or can chase yeah. our can chase our tail and not know where we're going wrong. Yeah, that's right. And then yeah. so that leads into the third thing. Really, um, just. Focus on that 100-yard work. Don't worry about um, your ability to hit gongs at long range and, and things like that until later. Just for now, um, work on how you shoot under various positions at 100 yards and just keep testing yourself that way. And um, be be content with that. If you're doing well there, then, then yes, really give yourself a pat on the back. Go home and think about what a great day that was. Because once you're really getting stuff down there, then that other stuff will come together. Because after that, really, the, the big challenge is going to be wind. And you can learn about wind just walking to work in the morning. You, you can have um, a kestrel or something like that. I mean, I, I don't use a kestrel in the field myself. I do it all with my eyes, ears, senses. But um, the, the kestrel can be used as a tool where you guess the wind speed on your way to work in the morning and then you hold up the kestrel and get a reading or you look at your local, if you've got a um, a weather station nearby that reports on the internet, then you guess the wind speed and then you go onto your device and you see whether you're right. So you, you make a guessing game of that and so you, you, just, you can do that all the time. You don't have to be shooting to do that. You shouldn't be because otherwise it, it doesn't become second nature to you. So you, you, you hundred yard work there, and, but you do your wind work all the time while you're, um, you know, while you're out and about, and then slowly all that long range stuff will start coming together. Yeah, I mean those are just little tips off, you know, off, off the top of my head at in the situation, but they're a good place to start. You know, yeah. and just keep, just don't focus on gear. You don't need a lot of gear. You don't have to look the part. Just Think about what you're doing. Yep. Yeah. And as I always say, most of all, have fun. That's why we're here, yeah, isn't it? Really, fine. have fun and you know enjoy ourselves. I mean, if shooting is not fun, we're in the wrong, wrong, wrong game. If we're not at least having fun and enjoying, you know, mates and camaraderie and and friendships and and enjoying the products and enjoying, you know, and getting better. Yeah, that's exactly right, and and that's where I'd like to encourage the, my readers to get to that place where they really feel like they've achieved something just amazing. I mean, it's such a thing to ask that little wee piece of metal to do exactly what we want across those ranges. It's just it's an amazing feat, and it's such a great feeling when it all comes together. You just feel on top of the world. But, I mean, that's just one aspect of it. There's also, as you say, being out there, being with friends and enjoying those experiences. Yeah. Absolutely. Mate, again, to finish off, so if they want to, you know, jump on your website. What's that? If they want to jump on YouTube and and, and check you out uh, and your shooting on YouTube, how do they do I'm it? Listed as Nathan, just Nathan Foster. They can search me out there. And uh, the website is uh, ballisticstudies.com, or they can look up Nathan Foster and ballistics or terminal ballistics research, which is our 
official company name. All right, Nathan Foster, thanks for joining me, mate, on the show. I really, really appreciate it, man. Um, almost an hour and 42 minutes. I've had a fantastic time uh, talking to you about you know, long-range shooting, and uh, you've certainly brought a few things to my eyes during the show. So if people want to check him out, guys, you can check out his website, uh, purchase his books, you know, give him a thumbs up because he's given, you know, almost an hour and 40 minutes of his time, you know, here on the show to, you know, for free to help us out and, and spread the knowledge. So, you know, jump on there if you want to purchase some of his books and do a bit of learning um, from what you've heard today. I think think you really really can't go wrong so nathan thanks for your time mate i uh, really appreciate it thank you very much thanks jason you've been listening to an episode of the australian hunting podcast i hope you enjoyed it see you next time